Welcome to the Gorefine Schiller and Garden podcast series. Today we are joined by Scott Rogeville, who is a director at GSG, and Mike Schiller, who is a manager at GSG, who are both going to discuss key nuances around nonprofit accounting, forensic accounting, and nonprofit accounting basics. And Scott and Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you having us. Thanks for having us. Sure. It's great to have you both actually here today. And Scott, let's really start at the top. So what are some of the major obstacles and challenges in nonprofit accounting? So Matt, I think that the biggest challenge starts with the biggest challenge in nonprofits, which is resources. We all recognize that most tax-exempt or nonprofit organizations struggle to identify sufficient resources to put on the programs that they wish so that they can carry out the services for which they were created. And So normally at the very bottom of the pecking order are resources for accounting services, you know, basic internal needs, as well as in some cases, the external needs. So whether you're talking about an internal bookkeeper or an external bookkeeper, have you dedicated enough resources to what they need in order to be successful? Have you budgeted sufficiently in order to determine that you're going to be able to put together an adequate and appropriate set of books to develop proper internal controls. And while resources are a major challenge, they clearly are not the only challenge that nonprofit organizations deal with in terms of their accounting. Over the past couple of decades, the major accounting governing bodies led by what what geeks like me like to call the FASB or the Financial Accounting Standards Board have really changed the way that nonprofit organizations account for certain types of revenue, which create their own little pitfalls because revenues don't always tend to match on the accounting's work with those of what donors expect to see. And so that that miscommunication or expectation gap between the two can really create some phenomenal challenges for an organization that's trying to explain why it is that their current year budget somehow is reflecting a significant loss, but only because they had recorded into income in the prior year a significant amount of money for which the expenditures were anticipated in the current year because there is no real matching amongst those revenues and expenses. So I would say to you, Matt, that those are a couple of the items that really jump out to me. And I think that there's a lot of lead in in terms of what can happen once you don't dedicate the right resources, which I think is the biggest challenge. That's great. Thanks, Scott. Great insights there. So really, what are some of the common issues in categorizing donations? And really, what's the difference between income and profit in the nonprofit world? So Matt, I'm going to start by answering your last question first, which is, what's the difference between income and profit in the nonprofit space? First things first is I think you got to remember that a lot of people will identify profit as something that shouldn't exist when it comes to nonprofit organizations, because it's right there in the name. But the reality is that, and I know I've said this to you before, I prefer to think of these organizations as tax-exempt organizations because profit is something that there is part of their mission and is part of their goal because it helps to fund their mission. If you're not generating revenues in excess of your expenditures, then planning for the future and having a five-year and a 10-year plan or commonly referred to as a strategic plan, it's just much harder to do. So most organizations are going to budget themselves to have those revenues exceed expenses wherever possible. And then in the years where those resources don't exist, you're going to then be able to look at how is it that I'm going to get myself through the tough years? Well, if you've budgeted in 
more profit in the past, and it's come through that way, you're going to have some resources to cover the down years. But income is, to me, like more of a gross revenue kind of terminology. Now, when you talk about net income versus profit, those two are a little more similar. And the language around nonprofits is a little bit different. We tend to use the language, a change in net assets. It's basically the accounting equivalent to net income for the organization, but it can also be indicative of profit. But profit is like the budget mindset and net income is more like, here's your accounting results. You get them on your internal as well as your external. But taking it through a step further, when you start talking about the most common issues in categorizing donations, here's where we really get into how organizations may see in net income differently than they do profits. Because if we're using profit as more of that budget mentality, very frequently, as I noted earlier, one of the challenges is knowing when and how to record donations to determine whether they're currently receivable or maybe they're conditional and you may not recognize them until a future period when those conditions are satisfied. And to take it a step further, depending upon the type of organization that you're running, you may have some other deliverables that impact your ability to recognize those items in a what I'll call a more timely fashion so that they match up against the expenses that relate to putting on the program that maybe was intended. So there are lots of different types of revenues or income items, and how you categorize those donations can really take another step when you start to look at the differences both internally and externally. So when I sit and have meetings with clients, if I'm talking to the development committee, they categorize donations one way. But when I'm talking maybe to the finance committee, they're looking at donations another way. So for example, donations in the development committee world, they're really super concerned with, well, what am I getting from individuals? Or what am I getting from private foundations that might be supporting our mission? And when you're talking about it from a finance committee perspective, it tends to be less in the weeds as to source and more to, is this a donation versus this is a fee-for-service where I'm generating some revenue or I'm putting on a fundraising event and how much of this ticket is my real hard cost with the excess amount being considered a donation. So you get into very different conversations depending upon your audience. So it's always important to know who the audience is and how you want to present information so that it's more thoroughly processed. Excellent. Thanks, Scott. And let's switch over to Mike. So Mike, what should nonprofit directors know when it comes to audits and really forensic accounting in general? So there is a difference between, say, a financial statement audit and a forensic audit. A financial statement audit is going to be more or less trying to ensure that the accounting records are correct and presented appropriately in the financial statements. Forensic audits or forensic accounting is going to be more when you suspect something fraudulent or incorrect may be going on, and you really need to dive further into the details of each and every line item and the numbers that go behind them. Got it. Got it. If you don't mind, Mike, tell us about your experience working with a nonprofit client that turned all of its employees into 1099 employee. So going back to touch on something Scott said you know, at the beginning here was that resources are a big challenge with nonprofits, especially smaller nonprofits. And one of those resources, obviously, is 
financial resources. So sometimes as a expeditious way to reduce some of those financial challenges, some small nonprofits or even some larger nonprofits have tried to avoid some payroll taxes and the expenses that go along with that by classifying people as independent contractors as opposed to W-2 employees. And the IRS has some very distinctions between what makes someone a W-2 employee versus an independent contractor. For instance, if the organization is only concerned about the end product and they don't care about how that work gets done, then the person is probably an independent contractor. But if they're telling the person, you need to show up at this time, you need to work this number of hours, you need to do the work in a specific manner, that is going to be classified as an employee. And the difference there is that with employees, the employer has to pay payroll taxes, your FICA, your Medicare and Social Security on each employee as appropriate from the IRS. Whereas with a 1099 independent contractor, they're only paying the wage and not paying those taxes. And they're shifting those taxes and that burden onto the person that was doing the work. So the IRS is very concerned about making sure that people are properly classified and it's an easy trap for employers to fall into when they're trying to figure out how to best manage their limited financial resources. So I guess, Mike, listening to you, one of the things that comes to me and sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about resources is that I find that compensation for staff on the accounting team in most nonprofits is an interesting area for two reasons. One is usually comp is not as competitive as you would see it in the private company sector. And then secondly, is that normally if you could do something with a two-person accounting department in a nonprofit, you're normally going to budget it for one. And so sort of setting the framework for that, one of the areas that I can remember reading about, you know, way back a long time ago when I was in college, in the audits, in the fraud space was always the fraud triangle. And so I was wondering if you could sort of share some thought in terms of how that kind of compensation and resource availability conversation fits in within the context of a nonprofit. Right. So the fraud triangle is opportunity, rationalization, and pressure. So with most nonprofits, there's always some sort of financial pressure because they're working with limited resources and they're looking for, you know, opportunities to try to take advantage of where they can to get those financial resources spent as best as they possibly can. And when they do something like misclassifying someone as an independent contractor or an employee, they're probably going to hit that third part of the triangle, which is rationalization. And the rationalization sometimes comes in where, you know, oh, the person's only going to be working for a couple of weeks. It's not a big deal. You know, I'll just put them as a 1099 contractor as opposed to a W-2 employee because there's a lot of hassle that goes on with, you know, a W-2 employee 
whether or not they're considering the financial aspects, they might just be thinking about the paperwork and the time that it takes. So it's easy for them to sort of go through some of the steps that could result in fraudulent activity. So with that said, Mike, it's always a presence. It's always a concern. It should be. I think that most managers of tax-exempt organizations, whether it's the board of directors or an audit or a finance committee or the executive director, CEO of that organization, no matter how big or small an organization is, there are always we always tell them how important it is to put controls in place. If you would help out here by maybe suggesting what is your sort of favorite go-to control that you always try to encourage within a small nonprofit organization? So one that might only have one or two people in the accounting department, a CEO, what's your, sort of your favorite kind of control to put in place? So that is one of the struggles with small organizations is getting those controls. The simple thing to me is everything should always have two eyes on it, regardless of you know whether it's the executive director or the board president. No decisions, no authorizations should be made by one person. And, you know, when it comes to some of the accounting issues, you know, especially with a small organization, I'd always recommend having some accounting expertise on the board that you can use as a resource. And then also using your own accountants and asking those questions before they become issues, before the audit happens. And then you get told, hey, you did this and it really wasn't appropriate. and you could get in a lot of trouble for trying to save a couple bucks here. You could be opening yourself up to some liabilities. So always, you know, ask the experts and make sure that there's multiple eyes on everything that you do. So one of the things that I always tell folks is it's not that I don't trust you. And it's not that the organization doesn't trust its executive director. It's about me protecting you. It's about putting controls in place to protect individuals so that they're not at risk. Because, you know, unfortunately, things do happen. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, I always believe that what we can do as the auditor best is to protect the people in the process and secure them, you know, insulate them as much as possible from risk of something going wrong and then being held responsible. What do you think about that? Absolutely. While a lot of things are done to protect the organization, when things go wrong, it's always the individual, not the organization that ends up taking the pitfall on that. So making sure that, you know, the executive director and the individuals involved in all the processes are protected, even from just the appearance that something could go wrong and making sure that there are good controls there that you can document and show that no one's individually making decisions and taking advantage and putting themselves at risk for when something goes wrong to have fingers pointed at them. That's great. Matt, I'm sorry to jump in and snag some of that question time for you. I don't know what else you've got for us. (laughs) No, that's great, Scott. I appreciate this lively discussion. No, I think we're getting close to the end here. And before we sign off, Just wanted to see if you all had any parting shots or last words, and we'll start with you, Scott. So my last words are really, if you're a nonprofit board member or executive, I strongly encourage you to have 
conversations like this with your outside professionals, whether they're your bookkeeping firm or your audit firm, you can have those conversations without impairing your independence and they'll make the relationship that you have stronger and will put you on a path to greater success and protect the resources of the organizations. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. I know I tell my clients all the time, I don't charge for phone calls. I welcome them. Uh, I think it's important part. It's important to our relationship to have that kind of conversation. And so I never discourage it. Great. Thanks, Scott. Mike, any parting shots? The status quo is always good. And when something is going to mess up that status quo and there's going to be changes, ask experts, ask your accountants before making changes to the status quo, because you might be making changes that you think might be appropriate that end up not being appropriate. So make sure, you know, get those expert opinions when you don't have them. Great. Well, this concludes this Gorefine Schiller and Garden podcast interview with Scott Rogeville, who's a director at GSG, as well as Mike Schiller, who is a manager at GSG. And both of these executives were kind enough to share their insights around key nuances around nonprofit accounting, forensic accounting, nonprofit accounting basics, and much more. And Scott and Mike, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Matt. We really appreciate it. Yep, you're welcome. Thanks for having us. 